Good morning. Good morning. Yes, we're starting a new sermon series this morning called Understanding Our Limits. Humil- humility is a path to love. So about 10 years ago, there was a pastor friend of mine from California, and he actually bought this book for me, and he, he had it sent. It's called To Love as God Loves by Roberta Bondi. And see, it's, it's thin. It's not like a really thick book. She tends to write these nice little tomes, but man, does this thing pack a spiritual punch. It's got a lot of depth. And it's one that I've come back to over and over again in the last decade, and especially the chapter on cultivating humility as a personal discipline. It's really made an impact on me. I highly recommend it for those of you who like reading as a path to spiritual growth. I know we've got a lot of you in here. So Bondi's still alive. She retired a few years back. She was a professor of church history down at Emory University in Atlanta. And one of her particular specialities is studying the early church. And when we talk about the early church, what we mean are the church communities that formed within roughly the 300 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in particular, she specialized in the writings of what we call the desert fathers and mothers. I told Lyle I'd give him a shout out because I know Lyle has like a particular proclivity toward the desert fathers and mothers. But most of us would probably be like, what is that? Because you don't hear them talked about all that much within the church. They sound like something in Star Wars, like you're going off to get your quest from them. But for the... (laughs) Rachel laughed at that. (laughs) For the first 300 years or so, after Jesus left the earth, the Roman Empire persecuted followers of Jesus harshly. It was illegal to practice Christianity. And many of the men and women who did, they were either killed or they were put in jail. And so within those early Christian communities, to be martyred for the faith, right, to be killed because you refused to deny knowing Jesus, was considered like the highest honor for a believer, to be a martyr. It was seen as like having integrity in your convictions all the way to the end. But then in the early 300s, the Roman Emperor Constantine came to power and he converted to Christianity and he made it legal. He made it the national religion of the Roman Empire. And so all of a sudden, it wasn't illegal to be a Christian. But there were some believers who were kind of nostalgic for the days when being a Christian was, um, it caused a little more fervency in the underground movement when it was illegal. We know even today that in, in countries where Christianity is illegal, there's a particular passion and fervency that happens in the churches when they're practiced sort of underground. I know I saw that, I, I worshiped a little bit with the underground church in China a few years back, and there's, there's a lot of passion that goes on. And so some of these early believers were kind of, you know, like nostalgic for the good old days. And some of them were a little bit concerned with how faith could get co-opted by the Roman Empire and how it was already being co-opted. And so they took off to the deserts of Egypt, and they formed some early monastic communities where they could continue living with the kind of fervency and devotion that they craved. It was like they might not be able to give their lives for God, but they could at least give up all their material possessions. They could practice celibacy. They could focus on spiritual disciplines like hospitality and prayer and meditation and fasting and serving. And they were essentially the precursors to today's monks and nuns in the Roman Catholic Church. They were looking for an alternative way of living, one that was countercultural to the Roman Empire and its economy. And they produce quite a few stories and sayings that have survived to today. And so much of what the Desert Fathers and Mothers write, if you read it, it strikes us as maybe a little bit odd. 
You know, so we don't read them for dogmatic answers, like, okay, how should I be, how should I live a Christian life? Because I'm not looking to go and like recreate a celibate nun community in the desert. Although I know somebody who wants to do that, but that's, that's a whole... <laughs> But we read it to try and find some, maybe some timeless spiritual wisdom. And I think that they've got some of that. You know, as with any collection of people, the desert mothers and fathers don't speak with a single voice. And there are contradictions among them. And they allow their sacred writings to reflect those contradictions. You know, much like what we even see in our own scripture tradition. You know, sometimes in the Bible, there are multiple opinions and they're allowed to sort of sit there side by side. And among the desert mothers and fathers, like one teacher will be adamant that hospitality is like the prime Christian discipline and another will say, no, it's silence and they'll have this sort of argument among them. But what united them was their conviction that the ultimate goal of the Christian faith is to love. It's to love God and it's to love our neighbors as best that we can. And they recognize that there are many different routes that we humans can take to become more loving. And that what keeps me from being able to love well is going to be different from what keeps you from being able to love well. One of the desert fathers is called Abba John the Dwarf. Abba just means father. Father John the Dwarf, sometimes called Saint John the Short. And he said, he said, you know, the practices of one saint, they differ from those of another, but it's the same spirit that's working through them all. So there's a recognition of like the diverse ways that God deals with humanity and that comparing our path to someone else's spiritual path doesn't bear much fruit. So the ultimate Christian goal is to love God and neighbor. And in fact, these early Christians would say that learning to do that well is the meaning of being perfect. Right, there's this story in the New Testament, I think it's in both Matthew and Luke's Gospels, where a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that's always sounded a little bit weird to my ears because I always wondered like, how could I possibly be as perfect as God? Because when I hear that word perfect and maybe when you hear it too, I think this, I think of like nitpicking ourselves to death. And I think of being a perfectionist and of trying to never do anything wrong, which I think is something that some of us, maybe many of us, are actually trying to get past in our lives. You know, it took me a good 10 years to get over my perfectionism. I sometimes say I spent my whole 20s doing that because my personality type is easygoing exterior, tightly wound interior, right? And it's a burden to feel like you just shouldn't ever mess up in any way or let others down because we're humans and we all make mistakes. So surely that's not what Jesus meant when he said that we should be perfect, like our Father in heaven is perfect. Well, these early Christians, they heard the word perfect and they understood it as ridding ourselves of everything that would keep us from loving the best way we can. Ridding ourselves of everything that would keep us from loving the best way we can. And to me, that sounds like a project that's worth undertaking. You know, I don't have any desire to go back and be a perfectionist, but I do have the desire to remove any obstacles within me that would keep me from loving others well. And so for me, that's a hopeful reframing of it that the Desert Fathers and Mother give. And it's also, for me, a helpful way to define sin for us modern human beings. I think that word sin can be such a loaded term, depending on your background. But sin is just whatever keeps us from loving well. 
Right? It keeps us from connecting to God, ourselves, each other, the world around us. Sin is what keeps us from loving well. And so Christians have developed these different practices and disciplines over the millennia that help us along those lines, right, to become more loving. And so we have all these practices like generosity and hospitality and serving. But underlying all of those practices, the desert mothers and fathers say, is humility. So what they're saying is that if love is our end game, humility is the path that best gets us there. Right, and to cultivate humility, that's where we do all these practices of praying and fasting and of giving our money away generously and of practicing hospitality. All of those practices have the goal of cultivating humility, and humility is what leads us to love. There's a story by one of the, the desert fathers. His name is Abba Macarius, and it goes like this. It says, when Abba Macarius was returning from the marsh and he was bearing some large palm leaves, he met the devil on the road with a giant skiff. And I thought, this is great. It's Halloween week, right? So Abba Macarius is there. The devil's in front of him. And it says that the devil started hitting him with the skiv. It's totally terrifying. But it was in vain. And the devil said to him, what is your power, Macarius? What is it that makes me powerless against you? Everything you do, I do. You fast, so do I. You keep vigil, like oftentimes the monks would pray through the night. And the devil says, I don't sleep at all. So in one thing only, do you beat me? And Abba Macarius says, well, what is that? And the devil said, your humility. Because of that, I can do nothing against you. Right? That, that was like the importance of the power of humility to the early desert fathers and mothers. And humility is another word, I think like perfect, that's been a little bit corrupted through the years. And so I'd like to start by talking about humility, by talking about what humility is not. And it's not about accepting an inferior position in the world. Right? Humility is not about accepting an inferior position in the world. At times, Christianity has used the guise of humility to justify awful things, like trading humans and uh, human beings, buying and selling them. And Christians would say things like, you're a slave, and this is your God-given lot in life. So be humble. Obey your masters you've been called to do. And God will reward you for your humility and for your submission. We even see this in some of the New Testament writings. And this kind of thinking was used to keep like serfs at bay all through the Middle Ages. The mask of humility has been used to disguise like the ways that power structures can be imposed on the vulnerable. I know that I would say maybe as a woman, I don't know, I won't speak for all women here, but if you grew up in the church, I get a little bit of like a cringy feeling when I hear about humility being talked about at church because the church through the millennia has asked women to like accept that their role is one of service to men and their families, right? to be humble, to embrace humility. And women have been taught that they should sacrifice their own needs and their own desires for the sake of others. We're even revered in our culture, even today, for doing so. And Roberta Bondi, she says, the real difficulty is not so much that women have been taught to serve, right? Learning to serve is a great Christian discipline, but that that service seems to demand a loss of self. Right? It's not that service is bad, but that that service demands a loss of self. And as I was contemplating it this week, I was thinking this arrangement also, I think, is hurt men. Yeah, I remember talking to a friend of mine. We've been friends since we were four. And, you know, when you meet people when you're four, sometimes you turn out very, very differently. She and I, we've got pretty different lives. And she's in a very traditional marriage. I think she's got seven kids now. God bless her. And that seems to really work for them. She's got a lovely family, good kids. 
Something she said to me years back really struck me. She said, you know, I really like that God made my husband responsible for all of the decisions in the family and for our well-being because it honestly, it makes me feel relieved to know that I don't have to carry that kind of responsibility. And it's his job to listen to my input, but the onus is on him about the decisions that he makes because he's the one that's ultimately going to answer to God for our family. And I repeat that and I, try, I don't say it like with contempt because that's, that's the kind of family I grew up in. You know, I don't know if some of you may have also, my mom would always say, your father's the head of the household, all the final decisions belong with him. Even if like in practice, I didn't always see that working out. <laughs> and it, 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 you know, like now my dad is 10 years into dementia and I'm like, I don't know how you, you know, manage to think about that. There's no way he could be the head of the household. Um, but it was just interesting, I, you know, and, and my friend and her husband, they really enjoy each other. It seems to like work for them. It works for a lot of people around the world. I don't mean to pick on her, but I was thinking how like revealing that was about a dynamic that I wonder about. And that's that if we abdicate responsibility, that might feel like a relief to her, but then that means that more weight than is thrown on him. And I do wonder if that underlies just some of the pressure that men in our culture feel about like providing. Even men who are in like straight egalitarian marriages. I, I, you know, I've been doing this long enough to see that like men who are out of work, I mean, it hurts women too, but like it, it really, they suffer when you're unemployed or underemployed. And I think part of that is related to some of this helpful or unhelpful gender imbalance. And I think these misunderstandings of humility throughout the years have also hurt the church. And Bondi says that in her study, she noticed that these sort of corrupted ways of thinking about humility really started to take place after the time of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. That that's about the time where that word started to be used in a sort of an off, in an off way that was causing um, power imbalances. And she said that when we look at the Desert Fathers and Mothers, it's actually really helpful to us recovering that spiritual discipline, like the richness of humility. So humility means we value ourselves as equal with others. And she says we don't consider ourselves too highly, but that also means we don't consider ourselves too lowly. And she talks about humility as this empowering acceptance of the self that's both with and in spite of our limitations and our weaknesses. Right? No matter what my status is in life, no matter what my education level, no matter what my salary is, I have equal worth and value as every other human on this planet. I'm going to read this a sort of um, dramatic example of this getting out of kilter. I've got a friend in Costa Rica. He's a pastor. His name is Jose Chacon. And it, he's got an interesting story for those of you who had the vineyard past. His dad, I think, is the pastor of the largest vineyard church in Costa Rica. And Jose wanted to plant a, an inclusive, an LGBTQ inclusive church. So he did. And he's got a lovely church down there. So he's kind of like our, our blue ocean equivalent in Costa Rica. So he and I connected, and the thing that's funny is that he doesn't speak English and I don't speak Spanish. So we, we found out about each other, and then we write to each other on Facebook Messenger, and then I plug it into Google, translate, get what I can, send it back, and then he does the same, and so we've, we've kind of kept in touch that way. But about a year ago, I asked him, you know, like, well, what books are you reading by Spanish-speaking authors that maybe have been translated? So he, he sent me this, and I was reading through it, and, and this... This details a memo that was sent out at the World Bank by a man named Larry Summers, who was the World Bank's chief economist at the time. 
And in this memo, he is talking about justifying sending the, like, most of the pollution of the world and sending it into poor nations. And here's what he says. From this point of view, a given amount of health-impairing pollution, in other words, pollution that causes people to get sick, should be done in the country with the lowest wages. I think the economic logic behind dumping a load of toxic waste in the lowest wage country is impeccable, and we should face up to that. And the reasoning is simple. If one were to place toxic waste in a rich country, it would lead to the illness and death of wealthy people with high life expectancy. A citizen of the United States or Europe contributes $20,000 per year in gross national product, while an inhabitant of one of the lowest wage countries combines a paltry, or, um, contributes a paltry $360. If both are 40, the wealthier of the two can be expected to work for at least 25 more years, during which he will contribute a total of $500,000 to the global economy. The poor person at 40, on the other hand, will likely only work for 15 more years to muster a mere $5,400. So in economic terms, the lives of the wealthy are far more important to the workings of the global economy than the lives of the poor. Thus, it is indeed economically logical that illness and death should occur in places where the foregone earnings will be the least. I actually wrote, I'm sorry to those of you who have like middle school kids in here, I actually wrote shit, seriously? <laughs> on the side <laughs> here. And then the, uh, the um, Jose Lutzenberger, Brazil's Secretary of the Environment, wrote back to him and said, your reasoning is perfectly logical, but it's totally insane. <laughs> your thoughts provide a concrete example of the unbelievable alienation, reductionist thinking, social ruthlessness, and arrogant ignorance of many conventional economists concerning the nature of the world we live in. Yeah. Amen, right, yeah. Spoken from a true prophet in Brazil. And I thought, you know, that, that's a dramatic example of somebody who is not seeing themselves, human beings, as equal to one another in the world. And those who are not shaped by humility, they place value on human lives that are based on their economic productivity. And this is categorically unchristian. Right? Humility means that we value ourselves equal with others, recognizing every single human being on this planet carries the image of God and that we honor that in one another. And we see this, oh, we've got a good example in Jesus, right? <laughs> Philippians 2, 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Right? So we see Jesus is equal with God, and he considered it as nothing, he didn't use it for his own advantage. He allowed himself to be made equal with humankind. And so he was equal both with God and with humans, but he laid down any advantage, any privilege that he had in order to truly consider himself one of us. Like he elevated us to that place to consider us on his terms. And he didn't come to the earth and become like a wealthy, powerful, earthly Lord, but he became a humble carpenter among an oppressed people. And he was accused by the proud and the powerful of cavorting with prostitutes and of hanging out with drunkards and hanging out with people who were quote unquote unclean. And that didn't bother him, right? He wasn't too proud, he wasn't too high and mighty to hang out with the people that society disregards. 
but he also didn't put up with any guff when humans tried to make him doubt his vocation and his calling. He didn't put up with any guff when people tried to make him devalue his self-worth. He was a self-possessed man, but also humble, which is part of the reason I thought this might be a great series to follow the Brene Brown one. You know, we've just spent the last four weeks talking about the importance of like self-defining while we're staying connected to the people around us and of recognizing our shared humanity and that all of us are, you know, vulnerable human beings that are in need of love and acceptance and belonging. So you might say, with all of that, like, how do we cultivate humility? I'm just going to give sort of a series overview here. So this will like whet your appetite for the next few weeks. Um, we're calling this series Understanding Our Limits because that's the foundation, I think, of understanding humility. We understand that we're limited. We're limited in our physical capacities. Right? We need love, we need sleep, we need food, we need rest, that we're creatures. You know, in the early Genesis story, of when you know, it's talking about how God created the heavens and the earth, the mammals and the humans were created on the same day. Right? The mammals and the human were created on day six. There's a German theologian, Helmut Thielicki, who I've liked to quote over the years because he calls it the solidarity of the sixth day. And I just think that is like such a poetic way of saying it. The solidarity of the sixth day means that our spiritual stories about creation and about how the earth is should cause us to recognize that we are very much part of nature. Right? We are created on the exact same day as the other mammals that walk the earth. We're not separate from nature, but we also have creaturely limits. Right? We're not Superman, we're not Superwoman, even if Haley is wearing a Superman outfit. I don't know where she is. Oh, she's down teaching. I was like, oh, that's great. And we also have emotional limits. We have limits on what we can know and what we can understand. And we have limits on our abilities to judge situations and people. We have limits on our time. We have limits on what we're responsible for. So over these next few weeks, we're going to look specifically at Bondi's work. And we'll do it in relation to various scriptures. You know, I was looking at it and thinking that the story of Moses might actually be really helpful. It says at some point later in his life that he was the most humble man in all of the world. So I thought we should look at that, provide some insight. Um, I'll probably use some Moses stories. But the first thing that she, she goes into is she says, we have to give up our image of ourselves as heroes. And so Ken will talk about this next week, I believe. And that the men and women who took up monastic life there in the desert, they went to the wilderness to learn their deficiencies. You know, not so they could go out and feel sorry for themselves, not so they could like go and feel better than all those other Christians that are out there. But they went so that their awareness of their dependency on God and others would heighten. And that seemed to be out of a genuine desire to be more reliant on God and more connected on God. And they saw every single task that they did out there in the desert, even those that seem menial, like going and getting some water, as something that contributes to the life and the well-being of the whole. And so they have something to say to us about how every task that we do throughout our days, whether it's making cereal for our kids or taking our dog for a walk, is something that we do as unto God. And instead of seeing themselves as like saviors to the vulnerable, they learn to take up appropriate tasks, right? And appropriate tasks for weak and vulnerable humans are ones that can actually be performed, right? Got a story. I sometimes don't like telling stories that make me look good, but I'm just going to tell this one. It was like the best one I could come up with. And I don't mean good, but just sort of... Um, I've been in the church and missionary world for quite a few years now. And in those worlds, you see a lot of 
big dreaming. And I'm sure you see this in business and entertainment and academia as well, but there was one group that I was working with in China, and this, um, this man had actually drawn up some architectural plans for a $1 million vocational training building that he wanted to build smack dab in the middle of Tibet. And um, it just wasn't reasonable on a lot of levels. Like the first one was that you can't own land in China. That's just the bottom line. It's a communist country. A lot of um, Chinese who are getting some money are trying to invest overseas because they can't own land. And if you do rent land from the government, which you can, if you build a, a building on it, the government can come in and they can seize it at any time. And you don't have a whole lot of recourse, especially if you're a foreigner. And the second thing was that non-citizens couldn't even live in Tibet, where he wanted to build the center. Right? So you couldn't own land and you couldn't even live there. And so I remember he sent me an email and he was asking me for a list of like potential donors, like people I might know who might want to contribute to this. And so I called him up. And I just, you know, told him some of these concerns that I had. And then I was like, you know, like one, I didn't think he would ever get that kind of money. But I was like, what would you do? Let's, let's say you got $100,000. What do you do if you can't build? Like, does that money go to you? Do you have a backup plan? Is there a board of directors overseeing? Just like all of these little things. And really this building didn't come to be. Um, but I almost felt sorry for him in that I felt like he just, he had this need to like develop this image of what like God was going to do through him, the man of God, to change the world, instead of just like serving the people and loving the people that were right in front of us. And I'm not void of this temptation to dream. You know, like dreaming big isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I remember I read this Bondi book pretty early in my, in my career, and it dramatically impacted how I see our role as Christians, no matter what vocational field that we're in. You know, it's, it's a little bit more of like what Mother Teresa said, and that's right. She said, love the one in front of you. Serve the one that's right in front of you. And when you do that, God will bless it. And sometimes it will turn into something that's bigger than you could possibly imagine. But you have to develop that mindset that being faithful to what's right in front of us is what helps grow our humility. Right? It's not thinking too highly of ourselves. In one of his parables, Jesus is recorded as saying this in Luke 16, Whoever, be, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with true riches? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you property of your own? All right, so Bondi says, first, we have to stop thinking of ourselves as heroes. Second, she said, we need to understand there's limits to our knowledge that we can't possibly know everything, and in fact, we cannot know anything for certain. And so that being puffed up with pride is something that turns people off. And then when we acknowledge that we can't possibly know anything, we then shouldn't let that lack of knowledge or that lack of certainty paralyze us. She said, sometimes there are times where you just have to move forward, even if you aren't positive that you're right. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. Just move forward, even if you're not sure that you're right. Kind of like what Ken did with LGBTQ inclusion. Just lean into it when something feels like love. And last but not least, Bonnie talks about how it's not within our human limits to adequately judge other people and that that job belongs to God alone and that we experience far more freedom in our lives when we refrain from doing that because it's not actually within our reach as human beings. All right, so I think pretty good stuff. So I'm just going to close out this morning by doing a little meditation. We like to do a two to three minutes of silence, guided meditation. I 
can do just a little, um, a brief guided meditation. People, humans make noise, babies make noise, so it doesn't have to be totally silent. Start just by getting comfortable. Breathe. Close your eyes if you want. You don't have to. And just use the, the, the first few moments here to just picture yourself situated with, you know, God somewhere in front of you. You can think about, like, are you sitting or standing? What's it, you know, what do your surroundings look like? Just sort of situate yourself with Jesus. As you're sitting there, just confess to Jesus a couple of um, things that you think you're really good at, like that you're gifted at, a couple of your strengths. Jesus say, it's okay to enjoy your gifts. It's like permission to enjoy what you're good at. And as you're sitting there, either... Um, either confess like a weakness that you're just kind of thinking about in yourself or conversely maybe you've just had some kind of terrible things go on in your life and you just are like oh, I just feel like I can hardly do anything right now because I'm so paralyzed by grief or sadness or sin or whatever is going on and just confess that and just lay it out there with Jesus invite the Holy Spirit to just help us to experience Jesus just loving us for all that we are. Good, bad, in trouble, troubled times, not in troubled times. And sometimes people picture God's love when they're meditating. Sometimes they'll try and picture it as like a gentle rain falling on them or sometimes like just like a, a comforting mist or presence. And you don't have to do that, but I'd like to spend maybe 30 seconds to a minute just experiencing God loving us in all that we are for who that we are.
And in that space, now picture the other people in this room also, maybe in a big circle around Jesus, all doing the same thing, just holding out their hands saying, this is who I am. We are all here. All receiving the grace of God, every one of us beloved. some faces if it's helpful. Jesus, we thank you that you became human and that you gave up any advantage that you had to come and make yourself equal with us. And we thank you that you taught us how to love one another. And I ask that through this series, Lord, that those of us who think too lowly of ourselves will have a better understanding of what it means to walk as a beloved child of God, that we are children of the King. And for those of us who you know, maybe have experienced a little bit more pride as, as one of our stumbling blocks, Lord, that you would just help us um, to have hearts of compassion and love for those around us. That you would make us feel better connected on an equal, um, sort of on an equal plane with all of humanity. And in all of this, Lord, I ask that you would just help us grow in love, both individually as well as as a church. May our hearts be open to the Spirit teaching us about this ancient um, practice and discipline of humility. We love you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.